The Plumley Pod, episode 20. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to The Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and today my guest is Simon Bay. Simon is the co-author of a book called The TV Delusion, A Psychology of Belief. Welcome to the podcast, Simon, and I'm going to dive straight in with how on earth did you come to write this amazing book? What triggered this? Hi, Sarah. Thanks very much for having me on. It's a great honour. I think it all started for me when I first woke up after 9-11. Um, I was a bit of a slow learner, so it took me quite a while, about 10 years, for it to dawn on me that it was uh, fake. And I guess I was in a bit of a state of shock because everything I thought about the world kind of turned out to be wrong. So in my naivety, I suppose that I could just tell everyone what I found and everyone would just listen to me and, and they'd all discover the truth as well. And then, of course, I found out that that wasn't the case. Um, just simply telling people didn't work. They didn't listen. They didn't want to know. And in some cases, they they became abusive. So the first question I asked myself is, why do people believe things which are obviously false, myself included up to that point? And that's when we started investigation, investigation into these things. And one of the first things we came across is is the idea of what, what does it mean if something's true? So if, if you are you and I agree on something and say it's true, what do we mean by the word true? Do we both understand the same thing when we say the word true, or or do we have different ideas? And a little bit of delving around uh, enabled us to come up with this idea that there's more than one definition of truth. And this is a problem for two people having a conversation, because if, if two people try and talk to each other and they're trying to discuss what things are true and what things are false, clearly that conversation isn't going to going to get very far if they don't even understand what's meant by the word true. So what we found was there are two kinds of truth. There's truth through authority. And that's where a TV set or someone in a white coat or a teacher or a politician, whatever, tells you that something's true and you believe them. So this is a truth which is emanated from outside of you and it's received by you and accepted. And the second idea of truth is something that comes from within it's something that means that an assertion agrees with a real event in the world around you one that's perceivable so it starts by your perception of that event and starts within you and then forms as a thought so in these in in some ways these two processes are opposite way ways round. one of them the the real one the correspondence notion of truth starts from within And the other one, the constructivism, comes from outside. And this is the kind of thinking that that got us started on on the book. And what what we found along the way was that a lot of the um, problems that people have with communicating with each other, a lot of the misconceptions about the world around them, were actually caused by the words they were using and their failure to understand the words and what they meant. So, So here's an example of that. So... A typical example is the word wood. Now, not not the kind that, that trees grow out of, the W-O-U-L-D one. 
So a lot of people use that. So for instance, if I say um, uh, 9-11 was a controlled demolition, for instance, people, would, people might say, no, it wasn't. They would never do that. And it all hinges around that word would. Well, what do they mean by that? And in this case, what they mean is that they have an idea of these people who might do 9-11. I might blow their own buildings up. And they have in their mind a certain moral code that they have associated with these people. And they're saying that to do this lies outside that moral code. So there we've got a circular argument straight away. We've got a group of people who might do 9-11, but they wouldn't do 9-11 because they're from the moral code. So that means they, they haven't done it. So whose mind are we reading to find out the moral code? So, you know, there's an example just of a simple word and, and underneath it a, a lot of um, complexity and, and circular arguments. And it's these kind of um, problematic arguments that, that drew us out to, um, read the, to write the book. You're spot on with the moral code business. I think the last two years, the pandemic, deliberate introduction of the L, the pandemic. I think that shows beautifully that we have different moral codes, don't we? You could even see them literally on people's faces. Those who would give up real freedom for perceived safety, you're giving up your freedom to breathe because you think a piece of face rag is going to keep you healthy. Absolutely bonkers. A very physical representation of different moral codes. It's something that I read your book quite a number of years ago. And then I reread it just at the start of the pandemic because I, when I saw what people were doing, how they were behaving, how they were reacting clearly to the television, it just brought back everything I'd read for the first time in your book. And I thought it was a, for the first time in my life, I didn't have to look very hard to see exactly what you and, and Joe have written about in, in the TV delusion. Well, that's an interesting you should say that because uh, many people have come up to us and said that they can't believe the book was written five years or so before this scandemic because the the things we write about are just so pertinent to what's going on now. And I think someone even accused us of some kind of foreknowledge of it. So <laughs> it's kind of quite strange. So it's interesting that we saw all these facts as like a template or th these, these problems as a template that has been repeated through history. But there's nothing like it being brought home to people by seeing people wearing like muzzles and stuff like that and people behaving, you know, um, you know, segregation and that kind of thing. It's nothing like seeing that right in front of your face to have all these things brought, brought home to you. And I think a lot of people are beginning to wake up that, that, to the fact that this kind of problem has been going on for a, a long time. And another interesting thing we found was we, we looked, tried to look back in history to see where this started. And I kind of expected that 9-11 to have been the first one. But as soon as we started delving into the past, we, we found that this pattern had been going on for years and years and years without anyone really noticing. Um, it makes you think what all those history books are about when you read at school. I, I suspect most of it is fiction. It's one of the reasons, uh, one of the key reasons I've asked you to come on and talk to our audience today is because I, I have a lot of parents approaching me, uh, usually via email, saying, what the hell do we do about history? So uh, typically the people who listen in are those who are either already home educating or are considering home educating in the future. And they're really they're terrified of teaching science and history because they realise that they've been lied to on such a colossal scale that they're really having a difficulty now in deciding where to start because, after all, what is true? And basically, with what is true, over to you. 
Yeah, and that's a very good question indeed. And I think um, one of the key processes of this is a kind of rational approach to this kind of thing. And in our book, The TV Delusion, we, we try to illustrate how this would work in a number of places. And what we're suggesting is that let's take a, any kind of narrative, either from history or from the modern day world, is to sit down, have a look at it in detail and take the points one by one that are presented in the narrative and first check for self-consistency. So something that's true is always consistent. You're never going to end up with, you know, one strand takes you to A and the other strand takes you to not A. All, all truth must be internally consistent. It's only false narratives which have irregularities and um, inconsistencies and that kind of thing in them. So one, one way to determine whether something is true or false is just to divide it down into a set of bullet points and go through those one by one and see if any of them contradict each other. And this is a technique we, we explore at length in the, in the TV delusion. But let's just take a fun example. So one thing that occurred to me the other day is I remember being taught in history that Hannibal invaded Rome. So he come, came from Carthage, which I believe is in Tunisia, although I might be wrong about that, somewhere on the north coast of Africa. And he invaded Rome. Now, think to yourself what you would do if you wanted to invade Rome. Would you get a load of boats and soldiers land them in some rural part of southern Italy where the Romans didn't notice you and then march up and invade Rome? Or would you go down to Central Africa, bag yourself a bunch of elephants, drive them up all through the continent of Africa, put them on boats and then drive them up the Alps of Switzerland just so that you can cross into Italy and invade Rome? Now, I don't think you would do that I don't, because, first of all, I think your elephants might get a bit hungry. Apparently, an elephant eats its own weight in wood a day, and there's no trees up the, the Alps. So what's the elephant's going to eat? So when you just put the story down on paper and work through it, you can see these inconsistencies and irregularities immediately. They're, they're glaring. But the problem is, of course, that, that not many people actually do this. They just take these stories at, at face value. I think you've just uh, done a new one for the elephant in the room, haven't you? That's even better. <laughs> the elephant up the Alps. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm taking it. Thank you. When I started looking at this kind of thing, I, I thought that process of analysis, to me, it seemed obvious and natural that there's something that anyone would do. But I began to find out along the way that it, it wasn't like this at all, that, that people just simply don't do this. And then I, I started thinking about when, when this had first started, started happening for me. And I remember... Um, before I went to school, I was kind of home educated by my father to, to a great degree. And we were always out in the garden making things. We'd be making uh, pinhole cameras, making telescopes out of old lenses we found lying around and all that kind of thing. And a lot to do with photography. My, my dad was a photographer. So a lot of it was to do with um, how light works and that kind of thing. Um, and so we were always building things, experimenting with things, chemicals, that kind of thing. And I just assumed that all kids had had this growing up, that they were always investigating and exploring, because the real facts are facts you learn for yourself by exploring with the world around you. It's like with your, your maths um, classes. To, to 
study arithmetic and maths in general, you have to be involved with it. You have to work through the problems yourself. You can't just memorize a load of solutions and parrot them out because, you know, on the day you're going to get a different uh, problem that you haven't faced before. So you actually have to be involved with it yourself. Whereas if you take this, if we compare this say, to history, it's like the opposite. You're, you're just a kind of um, docile recip- recipient of a stream of um, made-up stories, basically. And that, kind of, for me, heightens these two kinds of awareness of the world around us. There's the awareness that comes from within, and there's the awareness that comes from books and stories and the TV. And it's only the one that comes from within, which is the, the one which is going to be true. You've just uh, st- uh, struck me in the face again in that in that wonderful way uh, that you do. When you're comparing history and maths with maths and or science, isn't it interesting that with your background, your analytical uh, sort of scientific background, the same with Joanna van der Leer, your co-author, much more interested in science than history at school. Uh, the same with my husband, Tim, who's an engineer, and then me, who is a mathematics teacher rather than an English teacher or a history teacher, say. Isn't it interesting that the four of us have been kind of uh, engaged in what, what's true and what's false in terms of geopolitical events for a very long time? And yet, e- even though I obviously I love talking and I love reading and I love and languages and all of that sort of stuff, I actually ultimately still chose to teach mathematics. And I just wonder, is is that because we like to prove things to ourselves. Is that why we search for truth? Yeah, I, I guess so. And I, I'm thinking of other lessons I had. I remember doing English language lessons at school and we analysed the grammar that underlies English. And I, I thought everyone had had that and it was just normal that everyone should understand English grammar. But um, it turns out that it's pretty rare most people i think i don't know what they're taught in english language at school they i think they're just um they just sit there and i don't i don't know what it consists of maybe you'll be able to tell me but for me it was very different to what some other people describe so there's a lot of um focus on analyzing the way the language works pulling it apart observing the moving parts like like opening an old clock and looking at the mechanism inside and that's very similar to the way Mathematics should work, isn't it? You you take away the, the you pull apart the fundamental concepts and see how they join together, and hopefully you can kind of realise them by thinking about them in a tangible way. I mean, I like all the examples you give about you dividing up pizzas and things like that because it enables you to kind of think about the maths in a in a practical and kind of obvious way. Yeah, uh, practical and obvious. That's definitely two of my uh, key characteristics. Um, but you're, I, I, the reason I use pizza for things like fractions is because it's something real that children actually can reasonably expected to have had experience of. Whereas a lot of time in mathematics, it's they're talking about stuff that children either have no interest in or wouldn't really be expected at that level of development to know things about, like, for example, how much petrol costs or uh, the exchange rate. I mean, the exchange rate is just something mum and dad has to deal with when you go on holiday. Like, it's nothing to do with them. And I kind of realised that a lot of maths was going wrong for children, just purely based on the lack of age-appropriate contexts. So that's something that, yeah, I kind of tried to keep it in the physical. Just to come back to your English grammar, I loved the uh, comparison you made with the working parts of a clock. That that's what teaching English grammar should be like. But as we've just very clearly seen, they're not even capable these days of teaching, you know, the difference of the word between the words with and of 
died with COVID-19, died of COVID-19. I mean, it would seem to me, well, I'm sorry, but it would seem to me that an awfully large proportion of the UK population cannot understand the difference between with and of, let alone some of the more nuanced aspects of grammar, no? Yeah, and this reminds me of what Orwell said in his um, language section at the back of 1984, when he said that the new, new speak was designed in order to remove all words that could lead people to rebel or to think for themselves. And um, I actually came across the book a few about a few months ago. And I think for some reason, when I first read it, I didn't read the appendix. And I'd advise anyone to, to read it. It's um, absolutely fascinating the way he goes through the, the grammar of Newspeak and how the tools that people need to understand the world around them are systematically removed from them. So it's like you just said, if, if you don't know the difference between with and of and you can't string together basic concepts like that, you're kind of easy pickings for any propaganda going. Certainly, and weren't they just? Weren't they just? And wasn't the evidence everywhere? Yeah, um, it, it was incredible, wasn't it? I mean, what, what's amazing is that when they flashed the slides up about this, you know, with COVID or whatever on the BBC, they even had in the small print at the bottom, right in front of you, this this is just means they'd had a positive test within two weeks of the death or whatever it was. With the test, so they're even telling you the virus. Yeah, 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 exactly. With the fake test, I should say. So, so a lot of these things they actually tell you right to your to your face that they're they're lying to you and then they're manipulating you. And it's interesting to surmise as to, to why they do that. I've never really been able to quite work it out. I, I suspect it could be there to annoy people like us. So for for people who can see it, it's going to make them angry because these lies are so obvious. And that's going to make them angry at the people who just believe it. And I think it's to, I think one of the purposes of this is to engender entrenchment in ideas like belief entrenchment. So if a certain group of people have a certain belief or set of beliefs, they become more and more firmly entrenched in these beliefs that the hole gets ever deeper and deeper. I mean, that means that their, um, their ability to step out of it diminishes. One of the things I've always, I've always found is that Belief is the enemy of knowledge. If you end up believing something, because either, either because you, you, you feel frightened and you want to believe something or because someone's told you something and, and you're, you're too scared to question it, then what that means is as soon as you entertain that belief, you are going to stop investigating. That's the, end, that's the end of that road. So to get yourself back to the stage where you can ask questions on an, in an unbiased way and, and Re, restart your thought processes, you're first going to have to step out of that pit of belief. Belief, And that's, that's immensely difficult. Yeah. It goes, goes back I, to the quote I think you were saying from George Bernard Shaw earlier, wasn't it? Yeah, nicely. Perhaps you, you can remind us. <laughs> nicely done. I, I admire your skill there, Simon. Um, George <laughs> Bernard Shaw, yeah, we, we just very briefly, I mentioned this to you before we, we got rolling because I I was swatting up on the first few chapters of your book again this morning, and I'm going to prove that in a moment, my, my monstrous swatting. You know, grab the sicky bucket because it's truly revolting. But anyway, before I do that, uh, George Bernard Shaw, my schooling not only failed to teach me what it professed to be teaching, but prevented me from being educated to an extent which infuriates me when I think of all I might have learned at home by myself. Fancy that, George Bernard Shaw advertising for home ed way back when. Thank you, Mr. Wonderful. Shaw. 
<laughs> now then, this swatting, this revolting swatting that I'm talking about. Um, just you, you said there about belief being is the, is the enemy of knowledge, and I quite agree with you. Um, the uh, preface that you wrote, the, the first one in your book, The TV Delusion, it talks about an incident that happened uh, when you were a second year at university on, on the first day of your second year. Um, and I, I don't want to spoil it by by telling the story wrong, as it's your story. Could you just dig into that a little bit? Because I think it gives a really brilliant sort of overarching reason why you kind of went on this journey to, to find the truth and why people believe stuff that simply isn't true. Yes, yeah, a very good question. Thanks. Thanks for asking. So I wrote that because I wanted to have the book to have a very, very simple beginning. So it's, it's a book where it covers simplicities in depth and it also covers complexities. But I wanted to start with something very, very simple and very straightforward and perhaps with an experience that many people have had in order to kind of draw them into the idea of thinking. So what happened, I was in my first year and we were, I don't know, I can't remember, we were at some kind of uh, freshers event or something. And a guy, this guy called John was there, who became our friend. And he he actually been to the university for a couple of years but he was repeating his first year and the reason is because he became a, a student journalist and they sent him to um investigate one of, i can't remember which particular it was the moonies it was was it the moonies I it think was it, it's yes. the the unification church it says it i, I did read it you see right. I, I told you i was gonna yeah, be a yeah. monstrous swat there you go <laughs> i probably should have swatted up on my own book before the interview but <laughs> But why, why do that when I've got you to do it for me? So, but um, <laughs> so yeah, he'd gone down to interview these people and they said to him, well, instead of just giving an interview, why don't you stay for a couple of days and see what it's like? So he stayed and they, they fed him their cabbage water or whatever they, they do. And they well, basically brainwashed him, I guess is what, what you'd use. And so much so that his parents had to hire someone to go and, break him out and deprogram him and all this took him a, a year and eventually comes back to university a year later to, re, to repeat the first year again but while he was there on the compound of course everyone on on the compound had this same belief system that they all believe the same thing and in my mind formed this idea of the people on the inside of this compound and the people on the outside so you've got these two groups and the people on the, outs, the outside will probably be pointing at the people on the inside and saying, you guys are in a cult. But then again, the people on the inside would be doing the opposite. So that they'd be saying that everyone else is in a cult. So, you know, the question comes as, you know, how do you know whether you're in a cult or not? How do you know? Because you don't know which side of the fence you're on, right? If the cult grows very big, the people who are not in the cult, they, they could end up very small. They could just be in a, a little village somewhere with a wall around it. So it's not just simply, you know, the size of the, the cult. It's there's more to it than that. And that's what got us to thinking about this idea of, you know, these these beliefs and the idea of knowledge coming from within you. So the way you can tell, of course, is if, if your knowledge comes from within you, then you're you're not in a cult. If if it's come from outside of you and it's been forced on you by the TV or whatever it is, in this case the moon is, um, then you're you're in a cult. When I first read the book, it was quite some time ago now, probably five years ago, the first time I read it. 
I loved the introduction and I was really intrigued because um, I wasn't at uni in the 80s. Well, I I was born in the 80s, so I wasn't really aware of these little cults popping up everywhere. Uh, But I I had had a sort of vague knowledge of of those sorts of things. Anyway, so I read read into it a little bit, a little bit about the Moonies and stuff to try and get some background on this. Um, But what I couldn't get my head around at the time I freely admit this, is I couldn't get my head around the cult being so large that the people who weren't in the cult would be the ones living in a tiny village somewhere and everyone else around them was the cult. But mm. then, then the pandemic happened. And I was like, ah, this is exactly what you were talking about. This is when everyone else, the, 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 the majority are in a cult. Um, because I couldn't imagine that. I didn't think that you would be able to brainwash enough people at this one and the same time in order to, like I understood um, sort of from an academic point of view or a theoretical point of view what you were trying to say, but I, I just couldn't quite see how how the people who were not in the cult would be the minority. So when I saw you using the term branch Covidians, I, I, you were the first person <laughs> I saw to do this. You were doing this at the very beginning in March, March, April 2020. So well done to you for that. I kind of quote you, as I, I cite you as the person who invented it. Um, I completely got it straight away. I, I lo- And I'd also, ironically, I'd just been to Waco to um, re- do some research into the branch Covidians because I was going to write another play. And my second play was going to be Shoot Out the Heart, which is based on what did or did not happen at the siege of Waco. And of course, that was the uh, the, the branch Covidians. Uh, sorry, the, and I'm doing it now. Branch Covidians. Um, thank you. Yes, <laughs> the branch Covidians. <laughs> um, but the branch Covidians have completely taken, has completely taken over Um I'm even saying that where I mean the Vidians now. So there you go. It's a good good example yeah. of, of when the cult can grow so big. Like I, I never, I just didn't have the imagination for it, I guess. And and then it's you know slapped me in the face in in 2020. Well, it's interesting you say that. Let me let me touch on the psychological aspect of that first, and then maybe we'll come back to the branch Vidians. So what's happened there is, is there's a big difference between book knowledge and actual knowledge. So. You said you, you you read that in our book and, you know, you understood the concept, but you could never understand how it could be true. And I, I guess when I wrote that, I think I wrote that bit. It, same with me. I couldn't envisage it switching around. But the different kind of knowledge, the, the, the internalized knowledge is when you actually perceive this with your actual eyes. So when it actually started to kick off, you know, two years ago or how long, how long it was, suddenly it's kind of brought home, isn't it? And reality if it enters your mind and it's it's like you've it's like you've had the same kind of thought but it's almost like a different being has had the thought it's kind yeah. of it's like going from 2d to 3d it's literally yeah. like going from from you know a piece of paper or a flat screen to walking talking living breathing moving it yeah yeah it's it's like um exactly it's like it's in your in your being somehow knitted into you sort of thing as opposed to just existing in a, in a data bank or something that's kind of stuck on the top of your head. Almost like I don't know kin- how to describe it. I would say kinesthetic learning, kind of. Like, I always like to talk about moving whilst you're learning, like that physical kind of touching and moving and, and lifting up objects, kinesthetic learning, as opposed to just visual and or auditory. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very weird. To me, it's almost like there's two entities in, in everyone's head. The, the one that wants to just believe and just run on book knowledge and pretend they've got they've taken care of everything and then there's the the real you within the the one that the that's you know where things are woven in and in a way in some cases it 
almost seems like they're in competition with each other. And I think for some people, the the book knowledge one, uh, it wins their whole life and the, the other one is forever dormant. So, and that rem- reminds me, I was going to talk about these branch Davidians. One of the um, problems we had when we wrote the book, we um, uncovered all these things where we're presented with a certain narrative about events which have happened. But under the hood, something very different has happened, normally with the involvement of the CIA or, or something like that. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to find a big event that was actually natural and organic and compare the aspects of it to one which wasn't. So we hunted around trying to find a genuine one. And the only one that, that we could think of was the um, Jonestown thing, which kind of is a, reminds me a bit of the branch Davidians. But then when we looked into that, we, we found the fingerprints of the CIA all over that as well. So unfortunately, that, that part of the book was missed out because we, we couldn't find a suitable example of something that was genuine. That's a great <laughs> shame. <laughs> not surprising at all in, in, a, in a, well, not anymore. Um, wow, that that is quite a story, uh, Simon. Well yeah. done. Wow. And um, what I, I wanted to ask you: Can you just, in, in very very simple terms, for people who are not familiar with uh, constructivist theory of truth and correspondence theory of truth, if possible, do you think you could remember that example with the uh, the, the hose pipe and and the and the uh, leaf blower? I just thought that was brilliant. <laughs> I can see I can remember it. Um, I just thought that it will help people really crystallize which one is which and then they will start seeing it in their real life too yeah so what i was trying to get over with that was the idea of gathering evidence and the, the idea of the scientific method so what, what the scientific method does of course as, as i'm sure many people would be aware is it's a way of testing a hypothesis for its validity and what it allows you to do is it allows you to test two or more hypotheses against each other to see which is the best. What what it can't do is give you any kind of absolute truth. It can only give you the best of what you've got at the moment. So the example I use in the the book is you you wake up one morning and you look outside and everything's wet and there's like leaves and debris blown around your garden and there's standing water everywhere. You turn on the TV and the the TV tells you there's been a storm and you, you believe that. Okay, so that is called constructivism. So your belief has been constructed from a set of information which has been given to you by someone who has also constructed them in this case, possibly. And this, of course, covers many, many um, of the narratives we see on the TV, 9-11 and many other things included. But the other one, the correspondence one, says that hypothesis is true if it corresponds to an event in the real world. So what you do is you might come up with two hypotheses. So one, that there'd been a storm, that might be hypothesis A. And second one, hypothesis B, that someone had sprayed a garden hose everywhere and blown some leaves around with a leaf blower. So initially, each of those two hypotheses might seem kind of viable. So what you'd have to do is you'd have to devise an experiment whose outcome would point you towards one or the other. So, for instance, if there's a storm, it's likely that the the water and the damage, you know, the leaves blown everywhere, debris, is going to be pretty widespread. It's not going to be just in your garden. So the experiment you could devise would be you go outside, you go down the street or your road, and you have a look around in other places and see if you can see the same damage. 
if you can see other damage, it will lean you towards the hypothesis there's been a storm because it's more accurately um, conjoined with, with that um, observation. So the hypothesis, which more readily fits the observation, is the one that's the better. If, on the other hand, you go out and you don't find any damage, you might find you might conclude that it's the um, the hose pipe and the leaf blower. But at the end of the day, all you've got is, is you've got the better of those two hypotheses based on the evidence. So you, there might be a third hypothesis that you haven't thought of. You, you can't tell you whether that's true or false. There might be some other evidence that would lead you to lean in a different direction. It can't give you that. It can only give you, can only tell you the best of what you've already got. And I don't think people are comfortable with that idea of contingent truth in general. I think people want to know the absolute answer. So a lot, a lot of times when I say to people, you know, this, that, or that didn't happen, they say something like, okay, you tell me then. You, you tell me what did happen. And of course, most of the time, I, I don't really know. And we don't know because you know, not, not everything can be known in that way. But it's clear from the, what these people say is that they, they want to jump straight from one belief into another. And this kind of uh, got me thinking about a, a technique that's used for, as part of psychological warfare. Um, whether we like it or not, we, we live in the middle of a, of a psychological war. It's been raging since Bernays wrote his books in the 1930s and probably well before. And in this psychological war, all kinds of techniques are being used to manipulate the way we think. And one of these manipulation techniques is the idea that you always have to have this firm belief about something. And you're not prepared to give up belief A unless you've got a belief B to jump to. And this is using a technique which I call the, the grassy knoll. So this comes from, I use this term because it's refers to the, the JFK thing. The, the narrative that's presented in the, in the TV, on the TV, I normally call the, um, the lone gunman. That's what most people call it. And it comes from the JFK thing of Lee Harvey Oswald and that kind of thing. The, oh. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. You, mean, you mean the guy that didn't shoot JFK? Lee yes, Harvey the guy Oswald. that didn't. Yeah, yes, <laughs> the, the, he's the, the character who appears in the official fairy story of, of JFK, the guy who couldn't have done it because... There's no way you can make that shot. His gun was dodgy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, a million and one reasons. I've stood in and that window. And the bullet window. would have had to... <laughs> I have at the... Uh, oh, you stu at you've the, stood in the, it? Yeah, they, you can't get into it anymore because they've built a glass case around it. But I, I managed to get to that museum in uh, Dallas uh, way before they, they thought to put a, a glass case around the, uh, the, the, the specific window that Lee Harvey Oswald was supposed to have shot JFK from, even though the brain splatter goes in the wrong direction if he shot him from that angle. Yeah. But not, not, to, not to get too carried away with that one today, but it is really kind of, it's a wonderful example. because I use this one when uh, sheeple are trying to smear you as a conspiracy theorist. Number one, the best response is, well, at least I'm not a coincidence theorist. Because obviously that's for really stupid people. Uh, but the other one is, um, well, who shot JFK then? Because an awful lot of people who don't consider themselves to be quote-unquote conspiracy theorists also agree that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald did not kill uh, JFK. And it's like, well, actually, that therefore makes you a conspiracy theorist too, because the official narrative is still, to this day, uh, that Lee Harvey Oswald is the guy who shot JFK. Yeah, sad, isn't it? And then, but then, of course, what happens is you get these alternative narratives, which are 
promulgated by the so-called alternative media. And I'm not trying to say that all alternative media is bad, but I think some of it is equally as controlled as the mainstream. So typically what will happen in the in this case is you get a counter-narrative. And I call this the grassy knoll. So this is the, the kind of, some people call it the official conspiracy theory. I know um, Mark Devlin uses that word to describe it. And I think that's quite a good way of, of talking about it. I prefer the grassy knoll myself. And that stems from all these theories which are also put forward by the media and the alternative media about a second shooter on the grass you know sometimes the the the, this second narrative is called second shooter and what happens is this second narrative is equally well a construction in in many cases and what it's there to do is like a catch-all so many people who reject the official narrative of an event such as jfk or, or whatever they're just looking for this alternative viewpoint to jump to. And so if you give them it, it's like you're giving them a poison chalice sort of thing. They'll just jump to the second belief and they'll be adamant that 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 thing is true, even though it's been handed to them and it's a false thing in itself. So this is the one thing. When you're you're trapped in this spiral of belief, there's a possibility that if you do manage to get yourself out of your well of belief, you'll just jump straight into another one. And that's why it's important to exercise this kind of critical thinking at all all stages and see, you know, what of these narratives is plausible, um, even if it is an alternative narrative I'm being given. It doesn't mean I'm being given it by a genuine person. It could be there to trap me, right? Anything to stop you looking beyond either A or B, right? Exactly. And of course, the, the bigger the event, the more of these secondary narratives can be concocted. And what will happen eventually is, is that they they will put patsy figures behind each of these ideas. So, you know, there'll be like a load of so-called experts who come to the forefront and push the official narrative of JFK or 9-11, whatever it, whatever it happens to be, it doesn't matter. And then there'll be champion from the so-called alternative media who champions the, the, the second belief. And then they'll get them fighting each other. And many people just get embroiled in this hatred of finger pointing and name calling. And while they're doing that, embroiled in this fight over nothing, they're, they're missing, missing the, the, real, the real investigation, which is to be had elsewhere. It's often called a phony bone of contention, isn't it? Uh, to, you to took the people. words right out of my mouth. That's Richard D. Hall has kind of um, sort of Indeed. coined that, hasn't he? Uh, the phony bone of contention. He says it with a much better accent than me. But yeah, the phony bone of contention. It's a bit like, I suppose, if you go back to your 9-11 um, uh, starting point, that, that's like your uh, nukes, uh, thermite, nanothermite, uh, controlled demolition, it's all for goodness sake. That I think the point is that the people who the government said did it, didn't. That's the point. It doesn't matter exactly how and which particular, the, 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 the crucial, the, the, the main point that you should take away from it is X. It's a bit like this, um, what the hell do they call it in the, in the fake news media, the mainstream media that I call the fake news media? Oh, party gate. So this whole crap about was there a cake, wasn't there a cake, and did they drink a whole bottle of wine or just a couple of glasses or whatever it was. Uh, <laughs> no, you stupid morons. The point is that the government were not frightened of the deadly virus that was supposedly sweeping the country at the time. The point was that MI5 didn't think the prime minister was at risk having parties and close contacts and whatever, whether it was a party or not, I don't care. The whole point is they were obviously lying to you. No? 
Exactly. And, you know, this is the thing is to, to, to detract from the idea that, that they obviously knew there was no such thing as COVID or the scandemic. And that's why they're having a big party. Otherwise, they'd be too scared to go out their their house, wouldn't they? Just like everyone else. MI5 would not, in their back room. MI5 would not allow the prime minister's life to be at risk. It's as simple as that's their job to protect it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's it's kind of weird in a way, isn't it? <laughs> Crazy. So, and I think this is done deliberately. You, you just you just got a phony talking points, and then the newspapers will battle away for it for for hours and days and months. Um, and no one will ever get anywhere, and everyone will miss the point because people are just easily led away from the trail by the, these false, uh, false narratives and false stories. I mean, the other thing, of course, is for 9-11, I mean, I'm not a great fan of the old energy weapon theory, really. I mean, I wouldn't totally rule it out, but I don't know. I think it's a little bit far-fetched, and I think there are simpler explanations. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm right, of course, because I'm, I'm more than happy to be wrong as you say what's what's the most important thing is the official story is wrong but going going back to these these hypotheses about it you get a load of people in the energy weapon camp and they'll hurl abuse at the thermite camp or the controlled demolition camp or whatever but no one will ever stop to think well what happens if it's controlled demolition and thermite and energy weapons no one ever thinks that and if you if you ever say that you get shouted down really really quickly but it's perfectly possible that all three of those could be involved. And then, of course, there'd be evidence for each each to follow, right? They'd each have their own trail of breadcrumbs for, for each to lap up. Well, that's why conversations with you, myself, and, and your co-author, uh, jo- Joanna Vandalier, and my husband, Tim, last for like four, five, six hours at a time, because we're always offering multiple hypotheses. It's never, is it this or is it that? There's always lots of different things to consider, isn't there? That's the whole point yeah. of having a, a real discussion about things that, you know, can we verify this? What what would the evidence look like if this were, were the case, or if that were the case, or if the other thing were the case? It's never just two things, guys. And what what is the point in just hurling abuse at, at one theory? Because ultimately, how can you possibly know? How can you possibly know for sure what was used to bring down those three buildings on? Now, I hope I haven't just red pilled somebody some more. Yes, those three buildings on 9-11, one of which was not even hit by an aeroplane. It uh, it went down allegedly due to office fires. Yes, yes. Yeah. A bit like Grenfell Tower, which uh, is still standing, though, despite burning for longer. Yes, yes, that one. Yeah. It, exactly. And quite, quite a lot of these methods we have of working things out they rely on us coming up with ideas, even though the ideas might be wrong. It's kind of like a brainstorming. So we, we'd come up with ideas. And many other people have done this as well. And then you kind of have to kind of let them soak in for a few weeks and sometimes months, even years. And then after a while, you can start to synthesize and put them together and kind of go towards the truth. But you can't do that. If those ideas are stifled, you can't do that. And we live in an age where dissenting voices are shouted down. So look at what happened over the, the scandemic. People say, um, all these medical professionals were saying that, that COVID is real. But what happened, of course, is all the medical professionals who said it wasn't real were all censored. And I, I saw one get arrested with my own eyes in Hyde Park at a protest. So, you know, everything looks like people are all in unison if, if all the people who are not in unison are arrested. Quite, Yeah. It's absolutely unbelievable that you, this day and age you can't you can't have a, a debate you can't express a, an alternative point of view regardless of, of whether or not you have um, you know supreme credentials 
Um, I, I looked at the likes of um, uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch, who 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 has been smeared in in the fake news media, the mainstream press. But if you actually look into his uh, background, he is a he's probably the leader, the absolute number one in his field of medicine. If you look at the things he has achieved and, and the, the peer-reviewed papers that he's put out, it's an extraordinary number. And he's just one example of a high-quality scientist who had something different to say that was smeared um, all, all over the show in terms of, of the fake news media, the mainstream press. Yeah, and the same with um, Andrew Wakefield, of course, um, smeared over the whole vaccine autism thing. Now, the, the link between vaccine and vaccines and autism is clear enough for anyone to see who, who's interested. And I, I investigated myself. It took me two hours to gather the data off the internet and a couple of hours to format it in Excel and produce a graph and uh, you know a couple of extra hours to, to present it. And I was able to discover it for myself. I don't need to be an expert in autism or vaccines to see it. And, and yet all Wakefield said, he said that... Um, he thought that the, the possible link might be worth investigating. And look what happens. He loses his job, gets struck off. He's ostracised by his community and peers just for merely hinting that he wanted to depart from the, the accepted religion. It's like we're living in a, in a modern age, dark ages, a religious age, but the, the religion has become the religion of science. And that brings me along to something else I, I wanted to talk about, which possibly many of your listeners aren't aware of. And that is, of course, that um, there are actually two distinct and different bodies of knowledge, both of which go by the name of science. So the first one is, is true science, which is empirical science, which, is, which goes back to this idea of observation and measurement and hypothesis and the scientific method, which we've, we've talked about already. The second body of knowledge is, is like a fundamentalist religion. But it also goes by the name science, which is kind of confusing. And it, it's no wonder that the, the majority of people are confused by this when, when, when we're being presented with these two ideas, which are very, very different, almost opposites. And they're both given the same name. So with, with the whole vaccine autism thing, for instance, you, you can go and look into the link yourself by gathering the data. This is pure science. But of course, the... Vaccine fundamentalism tells us that, that vaccines don't cause autism. And this, of course, is passed off as science. People refer to it as the science. But the whole idea of science is that you, you can participate in it yourself. So if something is presented as science, then it's open to everyone. It, it's egalitarian. If you have some science where the knowledge is held by a group of elites, like an elite priest class, this isn't science at all. This is just a religion that's masquerading as science. And I think most of what we look on as science in our modern age actually falls into this category. And I think the other side of it, the, the empirical aspects of, of true science, I think have been forgotten. And I remember studying them at school and doing experiments, in physics experiments and that kind of thing. And to my knowledge, people don't do this in schools anymore. It's, it's, it's all gone. Oh, it's it's certainly all gone, all right. Um, can you can you explain to us in your inimitable fashion uh, why there cannot possibly be a thing called the science? Yeah, well, that's that's exactly right. So it it goes back to your your question from earlier about the difference between correspondence truth and constructivism. So with with the correspondence truth, which I describe with the the hosepipe and leaf blower thing, 
you end up with a, a truth which is contingent. So we can say that there's been a storm, due, but only because we've got the storm hypothesis and the leaf blower hypothesis. These are the two hypotheses, and we've got this certain evidence. And this truth is contingent on there not being any more hypotheses, which may be better, and there not being any more evidence, which might lead us in a different direction. But the idea of constructivism is you have the truth. It's, it's a truth which is dictated by authority, and that truth is unbending. And that's like a kind of Orwellian kind of truth, which is dictated by the party. And that's in our modern age, that this modern religion called science is, takes the place of the party. That's how we know we're living in a, in a religious environment. So the whole idea of the word the um, indicates that there's exactly one of it. And that, that's, that's the thing that's, that's kind of a problem. It, that, it can never be like that. I mean, if science hadn't been questioned, we'd still be taking thalidomide and breathing in asbestos, right? Correct. Yeah, for sure. In your chapter, uh, uh, my one of my favourites, perhaps the favourite, Beyond the Lemon, uh, chapter four from The TV Delusion, you have a quote from uh, Karl Popper, the uh, Austrian philosopher. The old scientific ideal of absolute certain knowledge has proved to be an idol. The demand for scientific objectivity makes it inevitable that every scientific statement must remain tentative forever. That was Karl Popper, and I'm saying, ergo, um, there is no such thing and can be no such thing as the science, period. Exactly. Um, what, what Popper was saying was he, he put forward this idea that could be used as a test to see if something was science or religion. And he called it the um, his principle, um, and it, the name's gone out of my head, unfortunately. Falsification, if it cannot be the falsified. Yeah, the fal- empirical falsification, that's it, thank that's you. That's it. Thank God someone spotted up. So, but so he put forward this idea of empirical falsification. And the idea of that is if you um, come up with an idea or a hypothesis or a, a thesis or an assertion or whatever, you, as, as the presenter of that idea, you're obliged to also present an avenue by which it might be falsified. Now, this doesn't mean that, that it, it is false or that it, it, you're saying that your, your idea is false. It just gives other people some way of proving it to themselves or test, prove in the sense of to test. So they can test your hypothesis themselves by exploring this potential avenue of, of debunking or, or whatever that's been presented. And with modern, the religion of modern science, this isn't possible. If, if you put forward an idea that whereby you can investigate the link between vaccines and autism, for instance, that, that that's not permitted. And the fact that that's censored and, and denied to people tells us that this is a religion and not, not a science using, using Karl Popper's uh, thesis. It's a great, I'm so glad you raised Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Um, he was the uh, whistleblower and, and doctor at the Royal Free in London, who all those years ago merely suggested that we ought to investigate a possible connection uh, between the MMR vaccine when taken as a triple, when taken in one hit, a triple in one go, uh, and autism. He, he, that was all he said. That was, that was, that was obviously the proceed version, but he, there was no more conspiracy or controversy or anything. He literally just said this really needs to be looked into. 
Um, I strongly recommend to anyone who uh, perhaps hasn't looked into that that you, if, if you're if you're not quite as nerdy as Simon and you're not going to go and collect the data and make your own spreadsheets about it, and if you're not as swatty as I am and want to read all the books on these things, what you can do is go and watch Vaxed. Um, vaxedthemovie.com. It can be found there. And it can also be found on the Iconic platform, iconic.com. If you sign up for, I think you can get seven days for free, you can actually watch Vaxed on there. It's called Vaxed, From Cover Up to Catastrophe. And it takes you through uh, a bit of Dr. Andrew Wakefield's journey. And the testimony of parents of vaccine-injured children is so compelling. It's it's one of the most powerful um, wake-the-hell-up movies I've ever seen, documentaries I've ever seen in my in my life. It was a, a, a rude awakening. And from there, it um, spurred me on to research more and more things about medicine, in particular, uh, The Patient Paradox by um, Margaret McCarthy. It might be Margaret McCartney. I always get this mixed up. I'll check it in a second. I think it's Margaret. I'm going to say McCarthy, and it's probably the other one, isn't it? But in any case, The Patient Paradox is a wonderful book. She's a, a Scottish GP, uh, that's a general practitioner. So in the UK, that's like a, it's a medical doctor if you're if you're American. Uh, really, really interesting book. Uh, there's another one called Overdiagnosed, and these are the books that I decided to go on and read along with um, Andrew Wakefield's own book. Straight after uh, watching the movie, it had such an effect on me. I did I did tons of research into uh, medicine just off the back of that of that one movie because it was it was exactly the opposite of, of what I'd been told my whole life. Uh, my sister's a social worker. Uh, they are vaccine fascists. They 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 love them. They're 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 complete. I would I would call social workers a vaccine cult. Um, uh, my mother, who uh, has worked in uh, a sort of a low level of very low level of public health, uh, she's a vaccine pusher. So when I watched uh, Vax the movie, I, I I was just curious. I guess I wanted to you know find out what the other side of the argument was and. Well, didn't didn't that open a whole can of worms? It, it took me straight off down the uh, big pharma rabbit hole, and and here we are today as a as a direct consequence. Yeah, very interesting. You should bring that that one up. I, I too watched it, Sarah. I thought it was um, absolutely amazing, and more amazing was the fact that it was banned from all cinemas. It was supposed to come out as a as a cinema movie, and it was billed as being available in the cinemas, um, and it was banned from all of them in the in the first few days as far as I remember and censored so to me um the whole idea of banning and censoring is is completely at odds with the idea of science these two are just simply mutually incompatible yeah so as soon as you see something a knowledge being censored you know alarm bells <clears throat> should start ringing you know that's a red flag right spot on you just uh, sorry you just triggered another memory was it was it supposed to be a um, one of the big New York film festivals, and d- uh, it got uh, pulled like the day before or something. Was it because uh, Robert De Niro was was doing some media around it? Was that vaxxed as well? I think it was. Yeah, I, th- I just remembered all that. Yeah, it was the... a big kind of headline production straight out. And he was behind it, and it all got pulled, didn't it? Yeah, and he did some media. De Niro, Robert De Niro, did some serious media, like mainstream media, fake news media, in in the aftermath of that movie being banned. I can't. Was it? I can't remember which film festival it was, but it's one of the massive ones in America. I'm pretty sure about that. And he, uh, people were debating whether or not it was his fault that it had been booted off or, or what had happened. But actually, it turns out that De Niro believes he has a vaccine-damaged son himself. And yeah. actually, I think my personal opinion, again, this is conjecture because I can't prove this, but my opinion is that De Niro actually did that, pulled that stunt, got that movie or or 
somehow arranged for that movie to be pulled from the festival because it got more attention because it was kicked out of the festival than it ever would have. I would never have looked at what movies were on at that film festival. I only I only paid attention to it because there was a big hoo-ha about something being banned. And I actually wonder if De Niro purposefully thought, what's the best way to get this, this vaxxed movie some more attention? I know, let's, let's, let's have my film festival ban it or whatever. And it, well, if, if that was the case, power to him, because it certainly worked for me because I would never have watched it had it not been banned. Well, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? I think it, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it was the Tribeca Film Festival. Although I might have slightly got that wrong. You're it's right. definitely a New York-based one. I wanted to say that, but yeah, I didn't mate, there. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe he did. Who knows, eh? Well, but, good um, on him. I, I think a lot of people have become aware of it since all that. And, you know, as awareness increases, uh, you know, it's great, really. If it can help improve people's lives, then, then brilliant. For sure, for sure. And with all this pharma, uh, I think you, um, it, it was a few years ago now, uh, probably two and a half, it was March 2020 when we had dinner in London last time. And you said to me, the age of pharma fascism is uh, finally upon us. And that really, really, really struck a chord with me because of the previous reading and research I'd been conducting, thanks to the movies like Vaxxed and those books that I mentioned. Uh, but when you, when you said that during the, the, the very beginning of the pandemic, scandemic, that that's that really hit home the age of pharma fascism. How did you? Yeah, know? and they, they had a little um trial run, didn't they? In I think it, I think it might have been in New York again, or it might have been somewhere near there in the in the northeast of the USA with a, a measles thing. Do you remember that? And they, they were saying that everyone had to be vaccinated, and they were they were going to stop them coming into shopping centres if they weren't vaccinated, and all this kind of thing. And it was like it reminded me of like a little trial trial run it didn't really get very far lasted a few months and then of course a little bit later they went in full-blown scandemic mode i don't remember where it was uh, i remember of it the measles thingy but um that's what you'd call in, biz- in business you'd call that a seed launch like a mini launch of a new product where you're just testing it on a few people in a controlled environment just to see you know how to improve it and how whether this bit works or that bit works before you then launch it properly that's the, it's, yeah. it's, it's the sicko <laughs> farmer ver- big farmer version of a, of a seed launch i just want to correct something i said you know when i went for margaret mccarthy and said it's bound to be the other one well yes of course 50 50 and i screwed it up i apologize for that it was Margaret McCartney. Sorry, Margaret, your book's wonderful. I wish I could remember your surname. Margaret McCartney, uh, The Patient Paradox, Why Sexed Up Medicine is Bad for Your Health. A bit like yours, Simon, uh, the, the book that you and Joe wrote, it smacked me in the face. When I read it, it, it crystallised lots of things that I'd thought, but perhaps had not been able to articulate very well before. I now had something, I now had phrases that I could attach to things and, and go, oh yeah, that's what I mean, but that's a better way of, it would take me 10 paragraphs to explain a concept that you've written like one sentence on. It's it's that kind of book, you know? I'd, I'd like to go and read it. It sounds really good. Yeah, I, I passed it on to Joe. Yeah, go go read it. It's 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 right up there. It's, it's exactly the sort of thing that you've been doing in a, in a different environment. Now, I must just ask you, why do people believe, I know this is a really big question and I apologise for that, but as I've got you here, why do people believe things that are false or fake? Why? Why? Well, it, it's, a, it's a good question. And it's one of those questions where as time has gone on, I, I thought I've kind of known the answer. And then I, I go through a phase of thinking that I don't really know the answer. Then I, I go back to thinking I do again. I, I think there's more than one reason, as with all these things, I think it seems like a simple question, but I think there's a lot of depth there. Um, I think one reason 
is um, that in our modern age, we, we have a religion which, which many people call statism. We call it TVism. Um, you could all, you could call it branch covidianism, anything you like, whatever. But certain narrative elements of traditional religion have been replaced by new composite narratives which are more fitting to the modern age. In, in particular, the idea of God, which is a narrative element of religions gone by, has been replaced with the state, so that the state fulfilled that role. So the state, in many people's minds, the state is something which protects us from harm, protects us from illness, protects us from being invaded, protects us from ultimately death. And this is the central pivot point of all religions. It's the idea that you'll be saved from death in some manner. So when someone has the idea that XYZ is going to save them from harm and save them from dying, they're going to protect that thing with all their might. It's kind of like a Stockholm syndrome, I guess. So that these people are going to defend that narrative element with every sinew in their body. And I think that's kind of one of the main reasons why why this happens. It's basically a, a fear of death or, or fear in general. And I, I think a lot of, lot of the psychological problems that people face are due to fear. I think there might be a bit more to it. And that obviously there's brainwashing from the TV as well and that kind of thing. But it's, in, it's interesting that this kind of reminds me of uh, something which goes back to what we talked about, about the two different levels of knowledge again. So if you, if you go up to someone and it may be a friend or an acquaintance, and say to them that the media lies, or the TV lies, or the TV news lies, they'll readily agree with you. They'll go, oh, yeah, blinking TV news, they're always lying. And they'll kind of readily agree with you until you mention something specific that the TV's lied about, like 9-11 or, or the convict scandemic or whatever. And then they'll go ballistic and start defending it. And this, this to me, speaks volumes. It's, it's like... um rebellion against the thing that's protecting you can seem cool when you're talking about it but actual rebellion is forbidden and i think that kind of says it all it certainly does it, it's it's inversion it's it's rank inversion to people who think the state protects you have you heard of something called democide you know <laughs> the government no. What's murders that? well it's a term coined by the american political scientist uh, rudolf rommel supposedly that's that is a wikipedia uh, ism, so I'm not going to pin my uh, the rest of what's left of my academic career to that um, particular uh, <laughs> particular monstrosity. However, it's 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 the intentional. The def- definition goes on to uh, which the part that I do agree with says the intentional killing of an unarmed or disarmed person by government agents acting in their authoritative capacity and pursuant to government policy or high command. So, democide is one of the biggest killers in the history of the world. Uh, it was only a few days ago when there was that alleged shooting in Uvalde in Texas. I've seen quite a lot of memes doing the rounds since then because obviously there's a massive gun grab going on by uh, the US government. And, you know, that's not to uh, diminish any kind of feelings that people have for those poor children or their families and that uh, that particular place where it, you know, where it happened. But if you look at it through uh, the lens of the political, the current political climate in America, um, once again, one way or the other, it, it has been used for an attempt at grabbing guns off citizens. Um, and there's some fantastic memes. I have one here. It's uh, There's a picture of Idi Amin, Hitler, Kim Jong-il, 
Pol Pot, Gaddafi, Stalin, Mao Zedong and Castro. There's a picture of each of them and it's all labelled beautifully and it says underneath, the experts agree, gun control works. <laughs> yes, it's, a it's, interesting, it's interesting you should bring up the idea of gun control. I always thought that gun control was the sole explanation for all these hoaxes and false flags. Uh, you know, it was like a vehicle for, for to bring in gun control, like a problem reaction solution type thing. But it was pointed out to me, and I think it's an interesting point. I, I still do think that gun control is possibly one of the objectives. But someone pointed out to me that if this, this stuff has been going on now for 20 odd years, if gun control were the objective, they haven't done a very good job of succeeding, have they? No, they haven't. They, they've and failed. That, yeah, and that leads you to suspect that, that at least one of the motives might be something a little bit different to gun control. Although I think, gun, as you say, I think gun control is, is part of it. I think there might be a bit more to it. I think it could be more to do with um, what's called the strategy of tension, which is a, a control technique that, that's used by states to control the population. Yeah, while, while she had them at each other's throats, uh, largely down the line of, um, oh, I can't say my words for those two things because it's far too rude for this podcast, but I, I, I have special names for Democrats and Republicans, and they're both equally rude. I'm, 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 no, not, I'm way past the uh, red versus blue, left versus right BS, um, but I, I'll try and keep it clean for the purposes of this. Um, but no, the, 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 it's definitely the, in the state's interest to have um, Two sides um, feuding at a just a, a you know a controllable level, say against one another over certain issues. And it's I, I also I agree with you that it's no coincidence that this has been rolling around. It keeps coming back. It's always the same story. Um, and it you know if they really wanted to get rid of the guns, wouldn't they already have achieved it? It's a good point. That said, they are very, very there is a, a large proportion of Americans that are very very fond of them. And, you know, I have proper respect for uh, weapons handling. Um, it's something I certainly wish. It's actually something I aspire to. I'm, I'm considering uh, purchasing a shotgun as it goes and learning how to use one, um, because I think it's important to have respect for weapons and, and weapons handling uh, on a, you know, an individual uh, level. But I, I do, I don't know, I, I think that, I mean, gun sales have gone through the roof during um, COVID nineteen eighty four. I, I joke on on social media that you know COVID was the best advert ever for the Second Amendment. Like you know, I think it was Dell Bigtree who pointed out to me that ain't nobody going door to door with no vaccine in Texas. Like yeah, yeah, it is a, certainly a, <laughs> something to deter the state. And I, I think yeah. that you know holding on to your guns is a is a big deal. And the way that the Second Amendment has been written you know, is very deliberate and it's very obvious what that means. It's to protect, the right to keep and bear arms is to protect you, potentially protect you from a government gone rogue. And if the poor people of America, you know, are not, <laughs> can't see that their government has very clearly gone rogue, then I, I, I certainly feel sorry for them. And, I, you know, long may they they hold on to their, their guns. Uh, I, I do think it's hugely important. If, if you compare the number of people that, that governments who took guns away from populations killed that's in the you know multi millions worldwide compared with you know shooting of uh, these so-called mass shooting events 
you know, the the, the number, it's an awful thing, but the num- the statistics are extremely clear. And then there's the other stuff that I, I hadn't, I've only sort of more recently become aware of, that in states where there is more gun ownership and where people do carry uh, firearms, there's actually less crime. Now, that's a bit flipping awkward for the for the alternative, alternative side of the debate, because they're always saying more guns mean more people get shot, blah, blah, blah. But in actual fact, if you look at the their own evidence, there is more there is more violent crime where people are not carrying personal weapons and and it, and logically that makes sense because if i wanted to go stealing handbags i'm not going to do it in texas someone's going to shoot me um you know i'm going to go <laughs> i'm just thinking about it from a, a mathematical logical point of view i'm going to go and do that somewhere where people don't where, you know where the, where the nice people are where they don't carry weapons nice people in, in inverted commas for sure i'm i i'm quite happy for people to to for people who have you know, respect weapons and know how to handle them. I, you know, I absolutely respect your right to carry one. I agree with you. Oh, now I, I've got the horrible suspicion that if they were to give up their guns, something very bad would happen as a result. I don't like to wave the crystal ball too much because um, I think it's a bit of a mugs game, but I don't know. I just have a bad feeling about it. I, uh, Tim and I were in uh, uh, Fort Worth in Dallas, the other cowboy, the cowboy part. So Fort Worth, Texas, I should say, uh, not not far from Dallas. But we're over down the uh, the cow yards or whatever the stockyards they call them. I'd run the ultra marathon. Then, if you remember, on on the first of yep. March, it's before we came to see you in London. Actually, we came to see you guys on the, on the way back. And after I'd done the the ultra marathon and uh, finished it and everything, everything was successful. Whatever, I was uh, relaxing, having a few jars, shall we say. And uh, Tim and I were lecturing anyone who would listen in downtown Fort Worth to keep hold of their damn guns. Uh, and and it, we did the same in Dallas. We said whatever. And this was before COVID nineteen eighty four even was a thing. Like we didn't know that that was about to happen. You know, we we, we don't watch the fake news media anyway. And it, this was um, end of February and beginning of March that we took our a trip to uh, holiday to Texas for this for this ultra marathon. And yeah, there we were, two limeys, two dirty limeys, uh, lecturing the the Texans to keep hold of their damn guns, whatever happened. And uh, it, was, it was quite um, heartwarming to note that the waitress who looked after us beautifully, she said, "Guns? Yeah, I got three. And she she, she was just a waitress in, in a bar, and she she was like, "Yeah, guns. Yeah, I got three. I know how to use them." And blah, blah, blah. really, you know, wonderful to kind of see that pe- people get it, people understand uh, that um, you know that that it's important to be able to defend yourself against the state. The state has a monopoly on lots of things, but one thing in particular that could be lethal, that could end your life, is violence. The state has a monopoly on violence, and therefore you should do anything you can to potentially protect yourself from that violence. Yeah, I agree with you entirely, yeah. yeah. Listen, thank you so much for coming to talk to me about your amazing book. Can you just uh, very quickly tell people where where can we get a copy of The TV Delusion, A Psychology of Belief? Yeah, sure. So we at the moment it's available on, on Amazon, and you can just type in The TV Delusion into the search bar on Amazon and it'll still pick it up. Um, we have a hard copy version and a Kindle version on there. Um, both, are, both are good. The, the Kindle version's in colour, which has its benefits, but the hard copy has the benefit of you'll always have it. So if Amazon decide they're going to take it away from you, they can't. So, yep, yeah, it's available on there for anyone who's, who's interested to compete. It's also on Smashwords, and I think on Smashwords still you can look at a free sample. So if you want to see what it's like before buying it, you can have a look on there. 
Awesome. Thank you very, very much indeed. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that I ought to have? Or is there anything else that you'd like to add uh, before I bid you farewell? Well, I think we've, we've covered everything. Thanks. Um, thanks very much for having me on the show. It's been absolutely brilliant. Uh, amazing to talk to you and hope your listeners enjoy the podcast. I have every faith that they will. Thank you so much for giving up your time. I, I, I really look forward to our next conversation. And we've done really well, like normally these last anything between four and six hours, especially when there's four of us, right? <laughs> we've done a summary this time. <laughs> yeah, pricey version. Yeah, very, very good. Um, so that was Simon Day. He is the co-author of The TV Delusion, A Psychology of Belief. That's by Simon Day and Joanna Vandeleer. I strongly recommend it. It's something I read. Uh, I can actually vouch uh, for, for Simon and Joe because... Uh, they, I remember Simon said at the start or towards the start of this podcast that uh, people, the book is so good, and he can't say that, but I can. The book is so good that people actually accuse them of having had foreknowledge of the scandemic. Let me just say that again. People accuse the authors of this book, The TV Delusion, of of actually having had foreknowledge of the scandemic. That's how good this book is. I, I can't think of a, of a of more high praise than that. So a badge of honour. Well done to you both. Thank you very much for joining me. And I wholeheartedly look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Simon. Thanks very much for having me on. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.